Welcome to Mythos, an audio journey through the folklores and mythologies of the world. Welcome to Law Britannia series of Mythos, where we explore the fascinating folklore of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, both ancient and contemporary. ghost. The etymology of the word took me on a strange journey, far from the typical idea of haunting as we know it. The word comes from the Old English word ghast, which refers to breath, spirit, and even angel, but also to person, man, and human being. This is conjectured to be from the root geis, which is used in forming words involving the notions of excitement, wonder, and fear. It is this sense of both ethereal personality on the one hand, and fearful awe on the other, that drew my attention. Indeed, when we come to know an individual intimately, it becomes very difficult to describe what they're like, to capture the overall guest of a person. And in the first three stories of this episode, there is for me, as a modern person, an underlying acknowledgement of the fact that the human personality is profound and complex. Surely something with such force must have greater longevity than the body, and if so, perhaps this spirit is transmutable, has the capacity to take other forms, even forms that reside in spiritual realms, lands of the dead, as it were. In British folklore, human spirits can transform into animals, the rabbit or the hare being a very common manifestation. In Scottish lore, human spirits can also be captured and transformed by the fairies or the fey folk. And then there are beings from the land of the dead that have the special knowledge that comes from being perhaps a resident in another dimension. Beings with that dread second sight, the knowledge of coming death. So from the castle haunts of witch hares and rabbit haunted groves in England, to fey goat maidens in Scotland and horse-mounted portents of death in Ireland, we will explore stories from that parallel dimension, the land of the dead. Welcome to Land of the Dead, Part 2 of Mythos. Story 1. The Bolingbroke Castle Hare, Lincolnshire, England. A hunting party on foot stand on the crest of a gently rounded hill, taking in the beauty of the countryside, soaked in the dying gold of the descending sun. They took in the tender undulations of a pastoral land, the lengthening shadows of lonely farmhouses and barns, and trees almost thrusting their darker, shadowy natures into the enveloping twilight into a spiritual borderland where such menacing doppelgangers belonged. The three men took long, heavy-footed strides down the gentle slope towards a farm where they knew a public footpath began and would lead them all to their respective homes. One man's hound pulled him down the hill with animal intensity and they laughed at his inability to discipline his beast. 
They spoke loudly with hunt-energized laughter and teasing the cool breath of Mistress Eventide, working her magic on their spirits. Then, mid-laughter, one of the men halted at a gap in the fence, where one could see clearly into the barn and where a lovely tan heifer seemed almost statue-frozen. The other men continued in their lively conversation, walking right by their mesmerized friend until they noticed that he wasn't following them. His profile was pulled back in an obvious grimace and his lithe frame unmoving. They looked at each other perplexed, called his name and received no answer. He was simply bewitched by something, something in that darkening barn. So the men approached their friend, except for the one who stood where he was trying to soothe his whimpering hound. The men stood behind him and strained their eyes to see what had their friend so transfixed. One put their hand on his shoulder and found that he was trembling, as if something both spectral and powerful were sending constant, tiny, electric shocks through his body. The last man of the party then arrived, dragging his now yelping dog along with him. First it was the sounds, an aggressive suckling, like a hag-ridden lamb, demon-tainted and weary, feeding at a bottle with angry hunger. There is something unnatural in the slurping, a sense of animal appetite that did not belong in that domesticated barnyard space. That slurp suck was so greedy, so mean-spirited, that it made the men shudder. Even the dog grew quiet, laying on its belly, only uttering distressed nostril huffs and the occasional puppy whimper. And once their eyes adjusted to the creeping darkness... The sight before them reached into their brains with ghostly hands and hypnotized and stupefied them, drew their minds into an uncanny portal. Just beneath the cow's belly, a furry creature with its long legs dancing delightedly, its front paws boxing at the air, sort of giggling hysterics in the movement. A hare. A hare sucking on the heifer's teats milk dribbling over its rabbit face. The heifer trembled and shook and might have kicked, but seemed to be under some paralyzing spell, the same spell the men were under. And as the hare suckled with impish glee in its trembling body, the men were united in a weird, unspoken experience. From the hare emanated a sense of terrible ancientness and mingled the sense of the dusty archaic was a sense of, well, presence. An antique presence whose age was nocturnal and unending. A soul that had wandered a veritable labyrinth of time and space, and many years later, when the men would speak of their experience in hushed whispers, they would all say the same thing. There was something human emanating from that uncanny beast as if it were a human soul dead for so long that it had transmogrified an ancient witch spirit turned hare then as if beckoned by an occultic chant of immense authority or as if called by a draconian hag mother the hare darted towards them and through the legs of the witch entranced men disappearing into the night and the hound's nostril huffs became tinged with animal hunger, lost its puppy terror, 
and the dog took off after the creature with hellish barking down the tenebrous footpath and towards the castle ruins. The man, the men darted after the dog, followed the frenzied canine to the mere stumps of the castle gatehouse towers, which was once staunch and kingly, but now devoured by time and the elements. The men slowed to a halt, watching the dog sniff in maniacal circles, trying to regain the track of its target. Looking around at the grassy courtyard, the men felt oppressed by these kingly remnants, disfigured by cannon violence, lonely and scarred. The perfect haunt, a pathetic kingdom ruled by decimated and anemic spirits. Scanning the lichen-engulfed walls, the men felt a presence, almost saturated with black magic and abysmal sadness. Then the hound darted away again, a four-legged being barely visible just in front of the dog. The men also gave chase, but again were thwarted. They saw the hare wriggle through the bars of what must be a cellar entrance, the dog snapping at its rear and then barking furiously at the grating. And the cellar was ancient, dark, and deep. Indeed, even the dog sniffed, whimpered, and pranced hesitantly in front of the grating. The men cajoled and commanded, and finally, the dog wriggled through the bars after the hare, becoming a mere barking echo, which ricocheted around the dark underground lair, as furious as the dog's own movements must have been. A yelp, and then silence. The men stood absolutely still, the dog owner trembling a bit, then a howling resounded very close to the grating and the dog wriggled through the bars, letting loose a series of hyperventilating howl barks as he dashed out of the courtyard ruins. Stunned, the men stared at the dark entrance. Then, a glimpse, the briefest of glimpses. A hair face with leering energy and human eyes. It disappeared, and the hunting party fled after the poor hound hyperventilating howl barks in their own terrified movements. Story 2. The White Rabbit of Etruria, Staffordshire, England. Eventide beckoned the furnace workers home, and one man, soul-weary of the heat and the flames and the boiling ugliness of the ironworks, decided to find solace in the exact opposite of this mechanical misery, the fertile springtime woodland of Etruria Grove. The fecundity of the place was like a portal to another realm. The man felt giddy with the newness and the beauty of it all, the peaks of otherworldly purple he had seen through the woodland gaps, now dominated his vision, the forest floor covered in bluebells stretching from arboreal horizon to arboreal horizon. This springtime stage, dancing with the blue-purple starlets, was canopied by the fresh lime green of new leaves, and the whole affair supported by stately and knowing trees, the grooved wizardry of the English oak's rough bark, the gray smoothness of adolescent beech trees, and the fairy litheness of the silver birch and golden farewells from the sun spotted portions of the woodland, while other portions lay meditating in twilight shadow. 
sitting on a lichen-covered stone thrown in the middle of a bluebell-saturated kingdom, the furnace worker suddenly felt it. What all the denizens of Etruria said happened when the sun had finally dipped behind the horizon and twilight deepened. A sort of, well, vibrating panic, a hysteria, as if the great god Pan were dancing invisible with his cloven hooves and reckless abandon. Yet, all was perfectly still, so still that the furnace worker was certain it must be his imagination. But the stillness was itself saturated in this deep terror. Not the shrill fear of immediate threat, but the canyon terror of standing small against forces that humiliate the human form, star radiation and the miles of blackness in ocean trenches, the whimpering panic of death even, and yet the furnace worker could not move, despite it all, the sudden sinister complexion that it had descended upon Mother Woodland's bright daytime face. Well, he felt a curiosity like he had never before experienced. Then his curiosity was suddenly usurped. Such vulnerability, such helplessness, he felt it down where the spirit meets the bone. And then he realized it. All the nightlife, all the insect noises had completely ceased. The silence itself then split into multiple dark presences. The furnace worker felt surrounded and so vulnerable, so very pitiful and vulnerable. And from the precise direction of a mature beech tree, he heard a piteous shriek for help. And again, and again, then a kind of sobbing, strangled sound then silence, but not an ending silence. No, this was a silence that filled the grove with something else, a wolfish energy as if a satisfied predator now loped around the grove with a satiated glee. So overcome with his own rabbit-twitching fear, the man did not immediately see the tiny creature that had appeared at its feet precisely when the spectral screams had resounded a pristine white rabbit. The furnace worker trembled at the sense of human presence in its dark eyes, a sense of pleading as if something were trapped inside the rabbit. And while the screams had now ceased, the furnace worker still heard them in his soul somehow, and they seemed to accompany this creature, so utterly and impossibly white so sad and vulnerable, and with an uncannily intelligent gaze. To his horror, the furnace worker had the increasing sense that giant-sized suffering and loneliness and fear was trapped inside this tiny creature, and that it was in pain, as if its tiny form was an overfilled container ready to burst. And on a sudden whim, the man reached for the creature, not to harm it, but to take it in its arms, to console it, to mother it, for he somehow knew that there was a child presence within the white rabbit, a ghostly presence of a weeping youth trapped in a world he did not understand. But the rabbit dashed away and then dissipated like tendrils of cigarette smoke, and the vulnerable, lonely child presence disappeared with it. That night, the furnace worker lingered by his little boy's bed and watched the gentle rising and falling of his chest as he slumbered peacefully. He cherished the boy's life, its fragility and strength, 
remembering the old story about the grove, a story he had not recalled until he had fled the woodland and dashed for home. There had been a murder in that wood, a terrible kind, child against mere child. Many years before, 14-year-old John Holcroft had been strangled by his friend after a gambling argument. Story 3. The Glashdig, Argyllshire, Western Scotland. A young man walked a mountain path, descending to Loch Lynn, feeling the sensuality of this fey twilight, the waters reflecting the rich palette of the sky, all damask pink and royal blue-purple, with the faintest blush of gold at the horizon. It was as if the sky had drunk the nectar of the rose and the hyacinth. So astonishingly beautiful was this sunset. And amidst this eventide beauty, there was a strange and unsettling energy, as if fairy forces were at work, funneling their energies into the boundary land between dying day and the awakening night. And now, as the distant mountains and the small islands that dotted the lake became night-shaded and black, the young man near the loch, seeing the lonely tower of Castle Stalker, a lake sentinel standing with dignity on its own tiny island kingdom. Then, as he continued towards the loch, there was a scattering of rocks, movement, the young man paused, and on either side of him were the craggy, pox-scarred slopes of the base of the mountain, which ended at the lake edge, swallowed by the now-deep black waters. Looking around, he saw nothing, yet, yet a sense of tension and anger inexplicably filled the atmosphere around him. It was so utterly real, as real as a mounting argument in a pub or those post-argument tensions we all know so well. Suddenly, the wild beauty of the rocky landscape became angular and stark, as if reflecting the inner landscape of a person, utterly and unfathomably wronged. The young man hurried along, a presence at his back, a constant and overwhelming sense that something was about to lash out, and that he was the target, whether he was guilty or not. And then another scattering of rocks. This time the young man could hear the faintest tap, tap, tap of hooves, perhaps? His nerves tinged slightly, but he wasn't yet afraid. But then, something whizzed just in front of his face, nearly scraping his nose. The young man cried out and leapt backwards. A rather large rock landed on the path just to his left, and he breathed heavily for a moment, frozen. And then something rammed into his shoulder, and he shouted out, making threats, telling the damned coward to come out and face him, to stop launching stones from hidden places. But there was only silence. He tried again, almost breaking into a run to get away from this mountain pass and to the shores of the loch. 
but this time, a shower of stones stopped him in his tracks, pelting the path in front of him. And again, that strange, hollow, clomping sound again, the impression of hooves on rock. He would try another path to his left. He knew this one would lead back up to the mountain for a spell, but would then lead him to another path that would descend down to the lake. He ran for it, scrambling up the skrill-filled ascent, and then onto a level track behind him, though, the hooves on the rock, still that sound. And all around him, a hissing tension, though nothing audible, a terrible anger that radiated from the black rocks and sparse tufts of grass, feeling as if a sort of target had been set up on the center of his back by a hateful gaze. The young man ran down the path, hoping his eyes would adjust to the moonless dark. And every so often, another stone, another echoing impression of hooves on rock. Then, the young man's being seized up, panic-ridden, disoriented. He halted mid-run. For gaping directly in front of him, elevated just above head level, was a cave like a small, mean mouth. The path ended abruptly here, yet he knew the path he had just taken, had traversed it many times before. This cave simply should not be here. And now he had to face the pestering ghost of a realization that had haunted him during his flight, that the landscape had suddenly become uncanny, a tinge of the alien to it, It resembled the path he knew, yet he couldn't help but feel as if everything were, well, inverted. Where a rock formation he knew to slope westwards, this one sloped eastwards. Where he knew a boulder should be to the right of the path, this one was on the left. He had no idea where he was or how he had gotten there. And as he stood in front of the cave, he suddenly wondered if he had died, if this spirit, if his spirit now wandered fey worlds. For a sense of the insubstantial of nothingness, of utter isolation, clamped down on his heart and robbed it of its quickening blood life. Then, a wailing song, so utterly lonely that the notes felt homeless, as if they were tramps that did not belong to the established country of song and tune as we knew it. This erupted from the cave, and while the tune was repulsive in its despairing emptiness, the young man felt compelled to climb up and stare into the darkness. And when he did, he heard again hooves on rock. Then a form emerged from the blackness of the cave into the lesser blackness of this other world. And the first thing the young man could make out was a face. A woman, straggling yellow hair. At first the young man thought he had mistaken a rock for a human form, for the face seemed made of gray stone, emanating a weird light of its own, so as to be seen. Gray, craggy stone covered in The young man shuddered, his eyes adjusting. It was a face, for there was an angry mobility to it. The set mouth and narrowed eyes were enraged. Yet so uncanny was that face, so utterly like gray stone covered in lichen, 
that it seemed a portion of the mountain had broken off from the land and had become human. But what brought the young man to his knees was the dried milk around the mouth. The dried milk, whether it was his own memory or some awful power of this creature, he suddenly remembered. He remembered as a village boy, being disbelieving and mischievous, pouring scalding burning milk into the hold stone, giggling at his own rebellious offering to her. He remembered the stories and admonitions from his grandmother that she, the spirit, was a protective spirit to be respected, that she was once a milkmaid who had died in childbed and whose spirit had been transformed by the fae folk into something other than. Lonely, so lonely, his grandmother had said softly, the grooves of her wrinkled face filled with golden firelight. All she wants is to be with us, to have a part in the life she now sorely misses. Give her milk and pay your respects, child. And the young man despaired, now, at his own boyish stupidity then. How cruel to have merely burnt her tongue with this mean offering of boiling milk. He remembered the next day, the old people of the village, saying they had heard an angry wailing in the night, and the old wise woman with second sight saying she felt an emptiness now, and that the glashtig had fled. All had gone wrong for them after that, and the boy had fled to find his fortunes elsewhere. And now, as the young man's memories played out before him in his mind's eye, the figure stepped out with equine delicacy. The woman before him had goat's legs, and her craggy face contained an empty despair. And the young man knew he was looking at an echo, who dwelled in a world that was a mere echo, and that now he was her companion. Story 4. The Dullahan, Gauti Mountains, Munster, Ireland. On a lingering twilight evening in June, a man was returning home on horseback, his path meandering through a patchwork of green fields hemmed and punctuated by lines of trees and woodland copses. Besides the occasional farmhouse and pasturing cows, he was alone, with the soft swells of Mother Earth and the elegant curves and lines of the Gauti Mountains in the distance. Yet, as the twilight deepened, the man became uneasy. Not because of the approaching night, he had ridden this way at this time many times before. No, it was the sudden shift in aura about the place. The familiar loamy smells in his nostrils, the crisp grasp of the air on his skin, the pastoral beauty that saturated his vision. All this was replaced with, well, a shrill, low-lying tension, a crooked hysteria. The mountains now seemed tumor-like, dark cancerous growths in the earth, 
the open fields an invitation to unknown threats. He shook his head, reminding himself that he would be able to see anything coming anyways. And then he felt movement beside him, walking beside him. Yet his horse was cantering along at a speed that was fairly gentle, certainly, but impossible for anyone but the most gifted athlete to keep up with. Yet this short, cloaked figure maintained the pace, the strides impossibly long, as if her legs were rubbery. Yet from his peripheral vision, he could not see actual legs, just the strange movement of the cloak as if spidery, frantic legs were working beneath. And it was this the man could not comprehend, which froze his neck muscles in place and forbid him to look. Somehow he felt deeply that to look and acknowledge would open up vistas of terror too awful for his small human vision. Then his horse stopped suddenly as if commanded, yet certainly not by him. And so did the cloaked figure, which turned its head upward, and suddenly the man knew this was a woman, yet the face gave an impression of nothingness, blankness, and despite his repulsion, the man felt a compulsion rise up through his throat and say, Would you like a ride, miss? The figure remained silent, but then suddenly leapt behind him with the most uncannily fluid movements. Her f he felt her weight behind him, an arm snake around his waist. The horse moved forward, eventually arriving at a drinking pool surrounded by hoary and time-worn trees, adorned by ivy. And when the horse stopped to drink, the man felt the, the figure leap off the horse, and he watched with a crawling sensation in his being as the figure glided away, with the sickening impression that she was skating elegantly along invisible ice, a sort of gelatinous fluidity to her movements. The man nudged his horse into a full-out run, and soon he saw his humble cottage, which lay at the foot of the mountain. Something in his terrified heart was warmed by the sight of the golden glowing beacon of hearth and home, and all he wanted was to feel his wife's embrace. But this was not the end. As he rushed towards home, he saw something lingering in the tree line of a grove at the foot of the mountain. And as he came closer, his terrified mind could only register in the, in the presence, really in pieces, there was a black cloak, the frosty-soaked steed he sat on, and a sense of black and terrible knowing seeming to emanate from it all. And in the meager light of the full moon, the man had the most fantastic impression that there was no head on that shoulders, and as he strained his eyes, he saw a roundish object being carried in the figure's right hand, nestled into his forearm. A head. A head with mean, black eyes full of buzzing insect energy. And as the man nudged his horse a bit further forward, he could see skin shavings of decay hanging precariously off the skull, and a nasty grin that seemed to split the face in two. Then it opened its mouth to speak, and the man shuddered, for the impression was of a grotesque puppet full of cruel prophecy. 
And when the man suddenly realized that the Dullahan wanted to reveal its terrible knowledge, when he realized the Dullahan was about to utter the name, was uttering the name of the next death, he covered his ears, but before he did, he heard his wife's name. In a distant land far surpassing the nine kingdoms of imagination, there was a girl named Nicole Schmidt whose grandfather took her on his knee and instilled in her a hunger for storytelling. In honor of Charles Henderson, my grandfather, I've been working on this labor of narrative love for well over a year. My intent is to bring to life that same immediacy, the same earnest involvement in the story I had all those years ago when my grandfather whipped up spontaneous tales. I also want to connect you with the stories of generations past, with the stories produced by those lost to history, and as Angela Carter so eloquently put it, with the vivid, raw narratives of the anonymous poor whose labor formed our world. Want to join in on this vision? Would you like to encourage and support me in churning out more stories? For sure, with a full-time job, I need the extra oomph of knowing you all are getting something out of it. You can support me on Patreon and become a part of that inner circle of storytelling enthusiasts whose creative partnership will help shape the future content of Mythos. You can also like my Mythos podcast page on Facebook, and head over to mythospodcast.com to read more about my inspiration and rationale for particular stories. And if you want inspiration for your own creative efforts or just want to do some more imaginative frolicking, there's also suggestions for novels, stories, and films. Or you're just wanting more storytelling. Well, the rest of the Lore Britannia series is there for you to explore. Everything from phantom dogs prowling the moors to water witches haunting stagnant ponds. Happy listening.